Uh, I want to welcome uh, Kai Berg. Uh, it's truly a pleasure and a privilege to be chatting with him uh, about uh, uh, his book on Carter, uh, particularly with the interest that I know the Iranian community, the scholarly community has of, uh, about this new president. Uh, the way we're going to proceed is I'm going to be asking uh, a couple of questions, a few questions, uh, and then we will leave the last 20, 30 minutes uh, of our time to your questions. Please submit them, as uh, Starbucks says, on this uh, Q&A uh, function, and we will try to get to as many of them as possible. So welcome, Kai. Uh, I thought I would ask uh, my first question. Uh, after I read uh, the recent description of uh, uh, the long marriage, now the longest historical marriage of a president to his wife, uh, uh, Jimmy Carter, uh, and how delightful of a human being he is. I was reminded of uh, Saul Bellow's uh, famous uh, phrase in his uh, Herzog that said, power is a dangerous thing and most dangerous people seek it. Uh, do you think this holds for Jimmy Carter? And do you think that might explain why we had an unfinished presidency? Yes, well, Dr. Milani, thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure to be with you. And I wanna thank you for reading some of my manuscript in progress some years ago. It was a big task and a very complicated story and you were of great assistance. But yes, you ask a, a, a very pertinent question. And you know, most Americans these days, they look at Jimmy Carter and they think, well, you know, he's a decent guy, great ex-president and a failed president. Um, and actually in my book, I, one of the themes about his character is that he, in my view, is a very determined, relentless, um, even, well, even mean politically. I mean, he's a very tough cookie. Uh, he is dedicated to winning. So your, your question and uh, citation of Saul Bellow, it's true, he sought power and he was determined to achieve it. Uh, the great gonzo journalist, Hunter Thompson, when he first met him, he, uh, he thought he was the meanest politician he'd ever witnessed. And what he meant was that he saw him in interaction with Ted Kennedy, the senator at the time. And clearly they were rivals. And clearly Jimmy Carter was determined to beat this Kennedy uh, and win the presidency. And this is a part of his character. He, he is very bright, extremely intelligent, driven and determined to win. And as a Southern Baptist, he knows that the greatest sin is pride. <laughs> and so he, in an effort to sort of uh, bridge this contradiction in his personality, he decided as a politician that when he achieved power, he would ignore the political costs of any decisions he made and would just simply do the right thing. So of course, this got him into a lot of trouble when he did win the White House and he began to govern uh, into his mind as intelligently as he could, disregarding the political consequences of any of his decisions. So this is a very interesting, contradictory kind of man. But yes, he, he did seek power. 
he wanted power. He wanted power to do good in his mind. <laughs> Which gets us to the question that I think most of our audience is uh, interested in. It's uh, how much good or how much uh, bad did he do on Iran? Uh, as I'm sure you know, uh, and I've read in your book, uh, you're well aware of the controversies about his role. Uh, but uh, the distinction of your work is that it's based on documents rather than on hearsay. Uh, it's based on facts rather than wishes. Uh, so what is new in your book about Carter's role uh, during the couple of years before the revolution? Yes. Well, I spent months and months in his presidential library and uh, you know he has 2 million pages and about 80% of them have been declassified now. So it's a very rich archive. And of course, the Iran revolution and the Iran hostage crisis took up quite a bit of his attention, particularly in the last two years of his uh, presidency. And so there's a wealth of material there. And much of this has been declassified just in the last few years. So uh, I would say the what's new in my narrative well, are two things. Uh, one, you get a, a vivid sense of the rivalry within the Carter White House and the administration between his national security advisors, Vigno Brzezinski, and his Secretary of State, Cy Vance. They had two different worldviews about the Cold War, about the Middle East, about Iran. Um, and Carter was constantly trying to uh, negotiate their, their differences. Um, and one of the big themes of my book is that Carter invariably disagreed with his national security advisor, Spake Brzezinski. Brzezinski had a very hawkish, Cold Warish view. You know, he was a Polish-American aristocrat uh, whose father had been a Polish diplomat, and he hated the Russians, and he saw every every issue in foreign policy through the prism of Soviet-American rivalry. So he looked at Iran and he saw the revolution beginning to happen, the, the protests in the streets. And he assumed without very good intelligence that it was all left-wing Tuda party manipulated by Moscow. Um, of course, as we know, this was all wrong. Uh, so he, in my narrative, you see that Brzezinski is constantly giving Carter bad advice, wrong-headed advice, uh, not only about Iran, but uh, through much of his foreign policy, much of the foreign policy issues that they face. Um, the second thing I, I think that is new, and I'm sorry, I'm going on a little long here, but uh, you know, when it comes to the decision that Carter made to admit the Shah find it, uh, for asylum on medical grounds, humanitarian grounds. People do not realize how long he resisted this effort and the political forces that were lobbying against him. So I, go, I use uh, documents from the John J. McCloy papers and Rockefeller papers <coughs> to document something called Project Alpha, which was a concerted, very well-funded lobbying effort led by David Rockefeller, Henry Kissinger, and John McCloy 
to lobby the Carter administration and specifically Carter and his national security aide Brzezinski and Cy Vance. And I mean, they went down to foreign service officers on the Iran desk in the State Department, just nagging them, pushing, pushing, pushing that you cannot abandon the Shah, that you must, you know, give him asylum. And of course, Carter resisted. And it's a, it's a fascinating story. So those are the two big narratives that I think are, will stand out to most readers of, of the outlier. There are several things uh, in what you said, Guy. One is that uh, what you think is a wrong advice. Many of uh, supporters of the Shah, including the Shah himself, think was the right advice. Uh, maybe Brzezinski was wrong in overestimating uh, the role of the communists, but Brzezinski was right in thinking that if this revolution happens, it is not going to be to the benefit of Iran, the United States, and the region. So Brzezinski might have been wrong in the sources of uh, his anxiety, right. but he was uh, more uh, astute than Vance was in thinking that if you push the Shah out, you're going to get a liberal democratic Iran. What would you say to that? What do the documents show about this tension? Well, that's true. Vance and the sort of the advocates of diplomacy um, were, were also operating under sort of bad intelligence. And they, they assumed, and many of the State Department experts on Iran, you can see this from the documents, were uh, either uh, assuming or hoping that the old National Front political forces who had been in opposition to the Shah and had now aligned themselves under the, the movement of, uh, led by Khomeini and the religious leaders, they assumed that they would come out on top. And that it, essentially after the revolution, the, there would be a secular nationalistic regime, but it would be one that America could work work with. Very few people understood the nature of Khomeini's theocratic vision. Um, so it was bad intelligence all around. But when I say that Brzezinski was wrong, he was wrong about the realistic expectations for what would happen on the ground. He kept pushing very late in the game for what he called option C, a coup. And uh, he was pushing for this, you know, in early January and as late as, as February 10th, 11th, 12th. And, you know, there's a, a incident in the book where uh, under instructions from Brzezinski, uh, Assistant Secretary of State David Newsom calls the ambassador, reaches him, this is the ambassador uh, Bill Sullivan in Tehran, uh, you know, the streets are in chaos, the army is deserting, uh, there, there is no control, it's utter chaos, uh, and uh, Newsom, under instructions from Brzezinski, says that, you know, the National Security Advisor wants me to ask you, Ambassador Sullivan, about the possibility of exercising option C. And Sullivan says, well, you can tell Brzezinski to fuck off. Literally, in that language. And Newsom says, uh, excuse me, sir? 
Uh, and Sullivan, who is a very blunt spoken diplomat says, would you like to say it in, in Polish? <laughs> you know, so this is the, the tenor of the debate that was very fierce and, and, and you know, the divisions between uh, these presidential advisors was, was really stark. Uh, you know, uh, when you read Sullivan's uh, dispatches from Tehran, uh, you get a sense that not only he was uh, outspoken, but he also knew very, very, very little about Iran and was profoundly arrogant about his views. I mean, I've rarely seen a diplomat be so sure of his ideas and be so wrong in his assessment. Uh, right. He is one of the people who thinks that if Khomeini comes, it will be a national front uh, government Algeria. Right. Uh, is there anyone in your uh, research who understands uh, in the reporting to the White House, the reporting to the State Department, what the phenomenon of Khomeini means? Is there anyone who is warning them that this ain't going to be Algeria? This is going to be something you've never seen before. Right. No, I think the answer to your question is no. There were, no, it was bad intelligence bad understanding all around. Carter himself, though, you know, I, I want to give him credit for sort of realizing what he did not know. He understood that he didn't understand what was happening. He wasn't invested in Iran in September of 78 when the situation in the streets became tense and violent. And he was focused in terms of foreign policy. He was focused at that moment on Camp David and trying to bring peace between the Egyptians and the Israelis. And there on that issue, he was heavily invested. He was studying the issue. He was reading psychological profiles of Menachem Begin and Anwar Sadat. When it came to the Shah, you know, he, he knew little he didn't care very much about it. He uh, was being pushed by his assistant secretary of state for human rights, Pat Darian, to be tougher on human rights with Iran, with the Shah. Um, and he understood and was sympathetic to Darian. He, he, you know, this is after all the president who put human rights at the center of American foreign policy. But you know, he was also uh, a realist and he did have as his national security advisors, Big Brzezinski, who was a hardline realist and was constantly uh, telling Carter, you know, to ignore human rights issues if there were strategic interests at stake. And so, you know, he was willing to, you know, he was willing to, to take Brzezinski's advice and say, well, we should try to do everything we can to support the Shah if he can survive. But he was not willing to intervene with troops. This is a president who had a fierce aversion to the use of military power. And uh, so he's in, a, he's in a vulnerable position. Events are, are taking place that he has no control over. And I, I you know, I just tell the story in the book and it's, I think, a colorful and credible story. He's being buffeted by both sides. He's trying to figure out what is the right thing to do. Um, he 
in the, by the time January comes around, he's very skeptical that a coup d'etat can take place. Uh, the Shah is clearly on his way out. Um, and he's seen reports of the military sort of slipping away. Um, but, you know, he's willing to actually consider option C. So it's, it's a very complicated story. But, you know, uh, he gets to option C, again, to play the devil's advocate. Uh, the U.S. gets to option C because they never had an option A that was very clear. In other words, it was, I think from September in the documents, you see a vacillation between supporting the Shah, as Brzezinski said, right. let him use the force and stay in power and negotiate from the position of power or the Vance line that says, no, we got to push for a more democratic Iran. And Carter seems to vacillate between these two and this vacillation by the time he decides to opt for C, it's far too late. Uh, the cat is out of the bag. The Shah has already left. He's left. He's, uh, he's lost his confidence. Uh, would you say that that reflects that these new documents that you have so thoroughly uh, looked at? Yeah, the, the documents do reflect vacillation. But I would argue the vacillation is grounded uh, you know, a little bit in ignorance. You know, these, these American politicians and diplomats, they really don't know what's going on in Iran. It's, um, and, but Carter had a healthy skepticism of the Shah and the whole idea of a Halavi emperorship. Uh, and he believed and he tried to tell the Shah that he should liberalize. Um, he believed that. But I would argue that there, you know, if, you, if people think that he, if he had uh, not vacillated intellectually, but had taken a hardline position uh, as Brzezinski wanted, was advising, the outcome would not have changed because that's, if you think that you're assuming that the Americans have actually power to affect the, the situation on the ground. And this was a revolution that happened from the streets. It had the support of the left. It had the support of, of uh, secular nationalists. Uh, it was you know, a revolution that was going to happen and Carter, I think, realistically advanced, hoped that maybe they could uh, uh, sort of navigate the revolution to a uh, safer harbor. And of course, they were naive and uh, too hopeful in that. And yet, I think it was a fairly realistic understanding that uh, the Shah was on his way out, and there was there was no going back. Uh, you know, uh, again, uh, as a devil's advocate, uh, you're absolutely right that the United States, in my view, first of all, didn't want to enter troops in Iran. Uh, it would have uh, been a very dangerous situation. Uh, I've seen 
uh, documents, I'm sure you have seen that the Soviets send a message that if you bring in troops, uh, we are going to bring in troops. And they were worried about that aspect of it. But uh, in Iran, I lived in Iran at the time. Uh, I, I spent some time with the leaders of the revolution in prison. The words of the United States meant an enormous amount. They read every line <laughs> to parse it out. I mean, really, if you read uh, Bazargan, the first prime minister's uh, right. memoirs, he said, when Carter said this and thus, we thought the Shah was finished. So Carter might not have known what those words meant on the streets. Right. If there were different words, the street might have looked different. Would you uh, agree that that might be a possibility? Yes, I think that Carter probably didn't understand the, the the force of his words. Um, but again, you know, he he was, as you pointed out, he was vacillating. He was sending mixed messages. He was talking to the Shah about reforms and liberalization. Uh, even in that one phone call he had in September of 78, right after the uh, massacre in the square, uh, what's it called? Jalet. Jalet massacre where, uh, you know, that was a real turning point and it was a terrible incident in Carter's eyes. But here he was in Camp David and uh, trying to negotiate peace between Israel and Egypt. And he took you know, all of five minutes um, to call the Shah and to talk to him about, well, you need to assert control, but you need also to, uh, institute some political liberalization and give people hope that the that uh, there's a, going to be a some attention and concern for human rights. So he was even with the Shah sending uh, mixed messages. And I can understand how, uh, you know, particularly in Iranian society where uh, after decades of the Shah's rule, uh, it's a society that runs on gossip and conspiracy theories <laughs> and uh, uh, misinformation and a lack of information and anything they hear in the papers, in the newspapers or on the radio um, is interpreted instantly, as you said, uh, as sending some kind of uh, concerted message. But in fact, I think what the archives show is that the Americans were out of touch. They had no plan. They had no, you know, there was no conspiracy involved. It was events were taking place completely beyond their control or understanding. Uh, I have two very important questions that I, before we get to the audience, I, 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 I think, uh, uh, the audience would uh, enjoy some uh, further uh, explanation from you. One is this uh, Operation Alpha. Uh, this notion of uh, bring, uh, how the shock came to the United States, uh, as you know, has been the subject of much controversy. There have been a congressional hearings about whether the Rockefellers had a particular interest because they were the Shah's bankers to bring the shock to the United States hoping that Iran's assets would be frozen and they could recoup the loan that they had 
what do you know about their motives and the kind of pressures they brought on Carter to admit the Shah? Well, the pressures they brought on Carter were just enormous and relentless. Uh, they were nagging him all the time. They set up a schedule uh, where at least one of their team, either Kissinger or David Rockefeller or John McCloy, would uh, approach one major figure in the administration at least once a week to make the argument that the Shah who had uh, left left the country, of course, but was seeking asylum, should be welcomed to send a message to other American allies that we do not abandon our friends. That was basically the argument. Carter didn't buy it. Um, he resisted this. You can see from his diaries, he's, he says, you know, I fear that if we do this, this is going to inflame passions in Iran. And who knows, maybe they'll take hostages, take over our embassy and take hostages. What will we do then? And you, his wife, Rosalind, in her diary, uh, states the same sentiment. Uh, so, but <clears throat> to answer your question, I, what was the motivation of David Rockefeller and Henry Kissinger and McCloy? Well, all three men were personal friends of the Shah. And, you know, these were men who uh, received a case of caviar every Christmas from the Shah, <laughs> literally. Uh, John McCloy, you know, was a powerful behind the scenes lawyer, Wall Street lawyer, who would advise every president from Franklin Roosevelt through Carter. And he uh, represented all 22 American oil companies in their negotiations vis-a-vis -vis OPEC. He had a, a letter, <clears throat> an antitrust exemption letter from the Justice Department that allowed him to meet with the CEOs of the oil companies in his office once or twice a year. And he visited Iran regularly and Saudi Arabia. Uh, he, he looked at Iran and, and the Middle East through the prism of oil politics. And uh, David Rockefeller had similar sort of financial interests. There were hundreds of millions of dollars in loans. Chase Bank had become the personal banker for the Shah. Uh, and we now know from some of Rockefeller's own records that he confided to people as the revolution was taking place that he felt Chase Bank was in an ex in, in undue exposure financially. And indeed, they, did, they were able, when the Shah did come to America and got asylum on humanitarian grounds, uh, this precipitated the hostage crisis, which then precipitated, they, they persuaded Carter to freeze Iranian assets. And they used that excuse to uh, seize other Iranian assets to offset their loans. So it was, it, it was all about money in some respect. And they were, you know, it was a, it's a matter of self-interest. Uh, so the Iranian regime essentially fell into a trap easily. <laughs> it did. By, really, by occupying the embassy and keeping the occupation for that long, they absolutely walked into a trap that has cost Iran billions of dollars. And some people have tried to figure. The other question before we get to the audience question is, uh, there is a great deal of uh, mythology about what happened at Guadalupe. 
at the conference, the, the conference, the Guadalupe conference. Guadalupe, oh yes. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. And that, that's where uh, Carter sold the, the shot down the drain. And uh, I have looked at some of the Guadalupe con uh, documents uh, and that doesn't seem to uh, be the story. Do you have any new documents about what happened at Guadalupe in terms of Carter's views on uh, Iran? Yeah, well, I quote from some of the, from his diaries and some of the, the documents that, that describe that conference. You know, again, Carter was meeting with other Western leaders, the French and British and German uh, prime ministers and chancellors. And uh, he was focused on issues far beyond Iran. <laughs> you know, they were talking about NATO and, uh, you know, oil prices and, uh, but they had to, you know, Carter took a, time out to brief his colleagues, his counterparts, about what he was hearing on, in terms of the latest intelligence from Iran. And he was also, while in Guadalupe, he was being pushed very hard again by uh, Brzezinski to consider option C, a coup. And he was very frustrated with some of the reporting uh, that he was getting some of the cables he re was receiving from Ambassador Sullivan, angered by it because he saw them, the, these cables as arrogant and, um, and uh, disrespectful. And uh, as a consequence, he, that's when he authorized, I believe that was the timing when he authorized General Heiser's mission to go to sort of check up on Ambassador Sullivan to explore you know, uh, the military option. Um, but you, you recall even before the Guadalupe conference, uh, and this is something I also quote from in my narrative, uh, Carter had brought in as a sort of external advisor, George Ball, a former State Department official himself who was in retirement, but uh, he was regarded as one of the sort of foreign policy wise men. And he'd had some experience in the Middle East. And so Carter, with Brzezinski's approval and Vance's approval, they, they asked George Ball to come down from his law firm in New York and spend two weeks reading all the cables and all the intelligence and write up a, a report. Now, this was in early December. And all submitted his report in mid-December, and it was very pessimistic. He, his assessment, as an outsider reading fresh all these, all this intelligence from what was taking place in Iran, uh, was very bleak. He says, "You know, it's over. The Shah's re regime is finished, and uh, we don't really know what's going to take its place. But uh, a military option is not viable." And Carter, at one point in the conversation with Paul, where he's briefing the president and all this, he says, well, I think I've decided to send Brzezinski to Tehran to see if he can um, come up with any, any uh, third option. And Paul uh, said, Mr. President, I think that would be a terrible idea. <laughs> it's quite blunt. And Carter was rather taken aback by that, but he respected Paul and, and he actually decided to back off on that decision. He did not send Brzezinski. But 
again, as the situation turned more and more chaotic in the streets um, of Tehran, uh, and as it became clear that Khomeini was coming back, uh, you know, they even debated about whether they could prevent the Ayatollah Khomeini from returning to Tehran. Uh, and they got no cooperation from the French on this. Uh, a decision was made, well, let's send in General Heiser to sort of watch over the shoulder of Ambassador Sullivan and see if he could give us some new reporting on, on other options. But again, I think Carter was very reluctant, skeptical of the option C of a military solution. And actually, in the end, so was General Heiser. You know, uh, it's one of those what ifs of history, uh, Kai, <clears throat> because the shock clearly was following the debates in Washington and right. knew Brzezinski was on his side. If right. Brzezinski had been sent uh, at the time, the spirit of the Shah would have been enormously impacted. I, I read George Ball's report, and for those who want to read it, I think it's available on his. Uh, uh, papers at Princeton, uh, anyone who was interested to find out where American policy was, that's a very interesting uh, uh, book, but uh, a paper, but uh, had Brzezinski gone, the Shah's spirits might have been uh, changed. I, I don't know whether the outcome would have been changed, but the despondent mood that he was in at those um, weeks would have certainly change. So uh, one last question. Uh, there are several questions lined up. Did you ever, in your interviews with him for the book, ask him whether he had any second thoughts about this, the way he had handled Iran? Uh, I did discuss Iran in general with him in the revolution. His, his uh, response was always, you know, I, I wish I had not uh, succumbed to the pressure that I was being put to give the Shah asylum, because obviously that kicked off the, the hostage situation, which was politically very, very damaging to his hopes for re-election. Um, but I think my, my sense is that Carter didn't think that he could have done anything differently, and that if he had done anything differently, the outcome would not have been not, would not have changed, that the Shah was on his way out. There was no way to rescue him. Uh, he had just become too much of a target uh, of, from all sectors of Iranian society. So, um, and he does, you know, Carter does sort of quip about the, uh, you know, when asked, oh, what foreign policy mistakes did you make? He, he, he almost in a joking fashion, he says, well, you know, I, I wish I had sent, sent in one more helicopter on that Desert One rescue mission. But of course, you know, if you read my account of that episode, the, the failed rescue mission, uh, it, it, was, it was a military operation that was destined to fail. If it hadn't failed at Desert One with the helicopters and the, the crashing into one of the airplanes, uh, it would have failed in, in Tehran disastrously, I think, with high casualties and uh, yeah. great loss of life. 
probably some of the hostages themselves. And, I mean, it was a very complicated uh, rescue operation in terms of the planning and every piece would have had to work absolutely without flaw. And, you know, that's just not, that, that just that rarely happens in human life. <laughs> well, it has been absolutely a pleasure uh, chatting with you again. I wish your book a great deal of uh, a success, a deserved success. And we now have uh, many questions I see uh, that Ms. Uh, Parhad will begin uh, to raise with you from the audience. Thank you. We do have several questions and comments coming in. Um, to get started on the first one, a viewer writes, the restrictions of the Freedom of Information Act regarding classification of classified material will be expiring over the next decade and beyond. What information regarding the Carter-Iran period will you look forward to seeing once it's declassified? How much of the Cold War secrecy will be open to scrutiny? Well, I, you know, we'll certainly see more details. Um, I would be surprised if we found anything that, that changed the, the narrative as we see it today dramatically. Uh, I think we know pretty much what happened in terms of the internal bureaucratic battles between the State Department and the White House over how to handle the Iranian revolution and whether there was any merits to uh, thinking that option C, a military coup could have happened. Uh, we'll get some more details. I, I was, uh, I, in my narrative, you know, this is a biography that focuses on President Carter and it's a full biography of his, his childhood all the way through uh, his post-presidency, he's now 96. Uh, but it heavily relies for my narrative on the White House years to, with, I rely heavily on his diary, his White House diary. And there are 5,000 pages of the diary, um, neatly transcribed. And he's published about 20% of the diary. And I asked him not once, but two or three times if I could see the remainder of the diary. And the answer was no. He said, he explained that for privacy reasons, there are still people alive who were talked about in the diary <laughs> and he would have to have it vetted for privacy reasons and for declassification reasons because it has, as a presidential diary, it has to go through that process. And that, that could be very time consuming, but eventually that diary is gonna be open and uh, historians are gonna have access to it. And I think we'll see, uh, we'll probably see some more colorful opinions, shall, shall I say. Um, anyway. We'll have to have you back to talk about it when that happens. Um, another viewer writes, other scholars have pointedly said that, quote, Khomeini is a product of the West. What can you say about the coordination of Khomeini's rise in the context of Western intelligence and media sources? Figures like Ramsey Clark and the CBS, BBC, French media are prominent in this story. Oh, I don't think Ayatollah Khomeini is a product of the West. He is a product of uh, old reactionary, feudal, um, religious. You know, he's a Khomeini was a voice of the past. 
and not a voice of modernity. He, uh, he was what he said he was. He, he circulated this report month, you know, years before the revolution talking about his ambition for creating a theocratic republic, uh, a theocratic dictatorship. Uh, and this is a very un-Western idea. Um, so I, I reject the assumption, I guess. Um, Ramsey Clark was uh, a minor figure in this whole story. Uh, yes, Carter, you know, he volunteered to go to Iran and try to uh, broker some kind of settlement of the hostage crisis right after it began in November. Uh, he didn't even get to, you know, to Iran. He, had to, he wasn't allowed in. Uh, but he, Ramsey Clark was someone who I knew a little bit as a journalist when I was a younger man. And uh, there, there was no conspiracy involved here. He was not an ally of the Ayatollah Khomeini. He was simply trying to broker a, a settlement and get people to talk who were not talking to each other. Thank you. Another viewer writes, what, what was Israel and Egypt's position towards Iran during this period? And, then, and did they impact Carter at all? Um, that's, that's interesting with regard to both Sadat and Begin, I guess. Uh, you know, Sadat, after all, provided asylum to the Shah when he left. Uh, and this was actually at some political cost to him. It was politically unpopular um, with his own Egyptian constituency. Um, but he did it partly out of friendship for America and Carter, he thought he was being helpful. Carter worried that, that Sadat was uh, making himself too vulnerable by uh, giving the, the Shah asylum. And he worried about Sadat's safety for that reason, for good reason. Um, the Israelis, you know, of course, had a long standing uh, friendship with the Pahlavi regime. They shared, you know, they had military uh, exchanges of uh, advice and, and supplies. They shared intelligence. Um, and so I think the, the Israelis were extremely unhappy when the Pahlavi regime collapsed. But, you know, they, they also kept the door open to the revolutionary regime. And uh, you know, tried to keep a, keep access to their own intelligence. Thank you. A few questions about the embassy and the hostage crisis. Uh, one viewer writes, "Thank you for an excellent discussion. Please give your view of Carter's accurate prediction that after the Shahs coming to the U.S. in October, the embassy would fall. Why did he do it anyway?" And another viewer writes, "Could the hostage crisis have been avoided?" Well, yes, the hostage crisis could have been avoided <laughs> if we had uh, closed down our embassy. But you know, embassies exist as a bridge to even difficult situations. They become all the more necessary to have a, a conduit for talking, even with people that you disagree with. That's the nature of diplomacy. Um, so 
when the revolution happened, they, uh, they did downsize the embassy quite a bit, you know, to the point where there was only one Farsi speaking uh, diplomat in the embassy. It's just incredible. So they had very little access or information um, to what was going on. And of course, the embassy was taken over and briefly in what was it, late February or March of 79. Um, but then the Bazargan regime at that point was able to negotiate a, an exit of the, of the embassy. Um, but Carter worried that precisely because it had been taken over once that it could that it was vulnerable and it could be taken over a second time. And uh, he worried that the pretext would be giving the Shah asylum. Uh, he repeatedly said no to McCloy and Brzezinski and Rockefeller um, and, and Henry Kissinger that he didn't want to do this. And rather the Shah, you know, play tennis in Panama or in the Bahamas or in Egypt or in Morocco. I mean, he, uh, you know, he, he bent over backwards to avoid giving the Shah asylum uh, and then was told uh, by Cy Vance, who changed his mind upon learning that the Shah was uh, seriously ill with a, a cancer and had needed access to Sloan Kettering in New York City. Well, even that turned out to be bad intelligence, but Carter didn't know this at the time. And uh, you know, he's, he is, if nothing else, a very decent man. And he felt that you know, given this report of the Shah's health, that he couldn't would no longer deny him uh, access to coming to America, uh, but he feared the consequences and he was right. Thank you. As a follow-up question regarding the Shah's health, a viewer is asking if the Shah's health condition at the time was a consideration in the fact that he was not supported by the U.S., that he did not have long to live and that his son was not ready to succeed him um, and there was no one to fill his shoes, so to speak. Yeah, I don't think uh, any of these American actors, from the president to the secretary of state to you know, lower down, no one knew the Shah's me medical condition. Uh, it's rather incredible, but again, it was bad intelligence. <laughs> and uh, the Shah was, you know, very successful. In fact, in keeping his medical condition, his ill health, uh, a secret from his own family and members of his own regime. Uh, so, uh, no, I don't think that there was any calculation that the Shah was on his way out simply because he was sick. Thank you. A couple of questions about Khomeini. A viewer writes, Khomeini and his followers passed taped cassettes among one another called the Cassette Revolution. Can you speak to the use of those tapes? Did the Carter administration understand that and do anything to try to tamp down on the exchange or did the Shah? And have you personally seen or listened to any of those tapes? And they write that they appreciate the conversation. That's very interesting. <laughs> uh, well, actually, when I was a reporter in my 20s, late 20s, I uh, spent three weeks in Iran right after the revolution. So this was in March of 79. And it was a time of great chaos, um, but of 
relative freedom too, I should say. There were you know, dozens and dozens of newspapers being published, uh, all sorts of political demonstrations in the streets, peaceful. Um, you know, there was a sort of a thousand flowers blooming. Everybody could say whatever they wanted. Um, and, um, and, but there was also signs of uh, tension and uh, roadblocks with young, young men armed with guns checking people's IDs. That was a little scary. Uh, but it was true. I also, uh, during that trip, uh, reporting trip, I listened to some of these cassettes. Uh, I didn't speak, speak Farsi, but um, they, they were shown to me and I heard some of the audio and heard Khomeini speaking. I tried to get an interview with Ayatollah Khomeini <laughs> and this was being arranged actually by Ibrahim Yazdi, uh, who I did get an interview with and I asked him if he could get me an interview with Khomeini and he attempted to, he got me an appointment. And I drove down to Qom and waited all day and the hour came and went and I stayed until the sun set. And at one point Khomeini himself came out on a balcony and waved to the crowd below and uh, he eyed me and I eyed him. And I think he decided he didn't need to talk to this Western reporter, um, but it, it was, you know, it was, uh, clearly a, a turning point in Iran. And we, I was just beginning myself. I came back from that reporting trip and wrote a long um, magazine piece for The Nation magazine, uh, arguing that, in fact, Khomeini's goal was to establish a theocratic dictatorship. And the evidence was in the writing of the constitution that was taking place uh, that spring. Um, Anyway, it was uh, momentous times. Thank you. Um, oh, quick question of viewer rights. What is your most recent understanding about General Heiser's mission? You know, it was, he was a general. He wasn't a diplomat. Uh, the whole point was to send a general to sort of talk to have consultations with counterparts, i.e. Iranian military officers, and to have some sense of whether they were willing to move in terms of option C, the military coup. But Heiser himself became extremely skeptical of uh, this option. Um, and finally, when, you know, very, very late in the game in mid-February, he was back in Germany by this point. He was called by a, a State Department official and asked, well, are you willing to go back to Iran and orchestrate a coup at this point? And uh, Heiser's response was, well, if you give me 10,000 crack American troops and an unlimited amount of funds, maybe I could affect something. But I'd also have to have a majority of the support of the American people for such a move. This wouldn't be a secret operation. This would be a military intervention. There was a long pause at the other end of the phone. Um, you know, Brzezinski and company understood immediately that what Heiser was saying was that this was completely unrealistic, that there was no support among the American people for this. And 
uh, 10,000 crack American troops were not about to invade Iran. It, you know, it was hopeless. Thank you. We, ha we have five minutes left and we have a lot of questions and comments we probably won't have time to get to. I just want to pass along. A lot of viewers are thanking you for a very interesting conversation. I have two more questions I want to ask about Khomeini. So the first one is, if a viewer writes, if Khomeini was not the product of the West, how can the decision of France admitting him there and providing him with all kinds of communication systems be explained? Well, this is... Uh... <clears throat> I guess in the first instance, you explain it by the fact that Western societies, this is their strength and their weakness. They uh, uh, have some, something called freedom of the press and freedom of speech. And uh, they gave, uh, they admitted this political dissident as such, the Ayatollah Khomeini. Um, and when he, he left Iraq and, um, they couldn't, they couldn't muzzle him. And he was becoming news because there were demonstrations in the streets of Tehran uh, that where the demonstrators were crying out his name. So he was obviously uh, newsworthy. So you can't, you can't stop a political dissident like that from getting access to, to the press. As I mentioned, I, there was discussion in, inside Washington about whether they could strong arm the French to, to uh, just refuse to allow him to leave, to fly back when he was clearly intending to fly back to Tehran to, um, because they, they feared that this would only ac accelerate his extension to power. But even this was seemed to be unrealistic and under French law. What, what are you gonna do? Charge Khomeini with some kind of crime and arrest him? Uh, he hadn't violated any French laws. So it was, there was really nothing legally that they could do. Thank you. And last question, a viewer writes, what do you believe the current U.S. administration should learn from the U.S. experience in dealing with Iran and Khomeini during President Carter's time? What are some lessons learned? Well, in general, I think uh, the Carter presidency and uh, Americans in general should approach the world with, with greater humility. <laughs> we should understand that uh, the world is a com complicated place that foreign politics and countries are uh, extremely complicated societies and that we uh, shouldn't think that we can uh, affect, affect change in the direction that we would like to see it happen. That you know, military intervention comes often with unintended consequences. And uh, so does sort of diplomatic initiatives that are based on ignorance. And it's very hard to understand uh, a, a foreign society. Um, and obviously the Iran Iranian politics today is extremely complicated. And anything we do seems to play into buttress various conspiracy theories. 
I, I don't know. I'm not sure what I would advise if I was in the State Department myself, except to tread cautiously. <laughs>